It's Dr. Stu's Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm here in our high-priced studio, yeah. <laughs> Bliss's Kitchen, with our high-tech system uh, with my favorite co-host, the mysterious one, Bliss Young. How are you doing? I'm here. I'm ready for okay. my day. We're happy to be podcast, back for podcast number 190. And uh, you can find me at uh, birthinginstincts.com and Bliss is at birthingblissmidwifery.com. No, just birthingbliss. Oh, birthingbliss.com. Mm-hmm. Birthingblissmidwifery on Instagram. And your email is bliss at birthingbliss.com and I'm at askdrstew at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you can find us there and you can like us on Facebook for a while yet. I'm not exactly sure how much longer I'm going to be on Facebook. We might switch to Zoom. We're talking about it. Uh... And you can find us at drstuespodcast.com, of course. And then on your podcast app, you can subscribe. And therefore, it will come up every time we uh, post a new one. So we hope that you'll you'll do that. So welcome. welcome. It's uh, By the time you see this, it might be after Thanksgiving, but it's still before Thanksgiving today. Best day of the week. So happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Jen from Seattle, first-time mama planning a home birth, 37 weeks. Congratulations. Sure, you're so excited to be in your due window. Um, and uh, Becky says, "Best day of the week, watching and listening to us." That oh, wow. was pretty sweet. Thank you. Wow. Wow. How do I follow? <laughs> how do I follow that? Okay. I like Wednesdays. I like that you come over and visit me now on Wednesday morning before I, know. I start my day. I know, and so, you have your coffee. I always have my. And coffee. I don't drink coffee, so that's a that's oh, a thing. Oh, I forgot to get you water today. I'm that's fine. all right. I'll be fine. <laughs> uh, so let's catch up a little bit. I just spent time in my car in front of your house <laughs> talking to a woman from um, England uh, through Instagram who is 12 weeks pregnant and told that she will need a cesarean section at 36 weeks. Twins, right? Twins. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Twins. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, oh, what, is she, what, what does she have? She can't have mono-mono twins because mono-mono twins, they wouldn't let her go to 36 weeks. They usually, those they never go that far. So she must have mono die twins. So she sent me a copy of her ultrasound report. Of course, she has mono die twins. Can you explain just really quick for those who aren't as educated as others about what that means, real quick? Yeah, mono well, mono mono die. Yeah, um, the twin uh, a baby is usually in two sacs. There's a amnion surrounded by a chorion. Mm-hmm. So when they have each baby and twins has their own amnion and chorion, that's considered die die twins. It's the safest kind. It's the most common kind. They're almost always non-identical twins. It's extremely rare for uh, um, die-die twins to be identical. It can happen, but it's very rare. And then you have the types of identical twins, which is where the, both twins have their own amnion, but they only have one chorion. So that's monochorionic diamniotic, or what we call monodi. Mm-hmm. And then the most dangerous and rarest type of twins is when they're in the same amniotic sac. Mono, mono. And that's mono-mono. And that's got a high risk of fetal demise and twin-twin transfusion syndrome, which can also be seen in mono-dye twins, which can't be seen in dye-dye twins. So she sent me a picture of her ultrasound report. She has mono-dye twins. So how someone tells someone at 12 weeks all these things that are going to happen to her in the future when they don't know, planting these seeds of doubt and this this um, fear that they're putting inside of her just annoys the shit out of me, of course, yeah, no. among, among other verbiage I could come up with, but it just does. Now, she has a chance sometime during the pregnancy of developing twin-twin transfusion syndrome, in which case she'll never make it to 36 weeks. But 
if she gets the 36 weeks and doesn't have twin twin transfusion syndrome, why are they telling her that because of the of the type of twin she has, she has to have a C-section and why at 36 weeks blows my mind. We've discussed this on previous podcasts about the, the reason that they induce twins at 36 weeks is because the neonatal death rate rises, but it rises so infinitesimally small statistically when you talk about actual risk that ultimately the choice should belong to the mother. And there's really no downside for monodiet twins if they're if they're growing well and don't have TTTS to have a vaginal delivery is perfectly reasonable. Uh, so variation of normal. Anyway, I'm going to getting back to her. I told her I'd have to, maybe she's watching the podcast. If you are right. He's angry about it. Right. <laughs> um, Someone was complimenting your t-shirt. I love my t-shirt. <laughs> right. I, I, I have about three t-shirts. The last one I wore was Dr. Seuss podcast, but the letters are wearing on. I know. So that's I don't, what you're getting for Christmas. You think? No, <laughs> you're getting a coffee cup, right? <laughs> and I'm getting you a t-shirt. Okay. We splurge. I don't really wear a t-shirt. <laughs> we splurge on each other. I know. <laughs> Actually, you did spoil me for my birthday. I did. Just saying. I was quite impressed with my flower arrangement. It was gorgeous. So. Okay. So uh, just quickly, I want to congratulate uh, family in Brea who had a beautiful second baby uh, two days ago, water birth, uh, 10 pounds. Oh, I heard about this. No, uh, intact. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So that was great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can't be done. I heard baby has no neck. Oh, did that, you, you, you heard that? <laughs> Send a picture. Yeah. Just like the cheeks. Yeah. It was, it was, the head was just sitting on the perineum for a while underwater and, and I was, uh, it was an on the couch package for you. At that point, I didn't like it anymore because we hadn't heard the heartbeat for a while. And, and I just said, we've got to get the kid out. So I helped the dad, the dad delivered the kid. No shoulder dystocia, no nothing. Fat dystocia. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't know it was 10 pounds, but even if we had known it was 10 pounds, would we have done anything different? No. No? Of course not. Nope. Course Good not. answer. Thanks. Yeah. I get a, right, I right get a prize. Right. And then you have uh, one or two people you want to talk about before we get into our stuff for today. Well, um, I didn't have... I didn't actually have a delivery this week. I was trying to think. I you want to talk about the poly, I think, later? Yeah, I didn't actually have a delivery this week, but I did have a mama. I think we talked about her yet last week um, who was being induced, Sarah, and she is home with her baby. Baby Jack was born vaginally thanks to Dr. Brock. Um, I'm so happy with the collaboration that he supported her in having a vaginal delivery in the hospital. So that was great. Um, and then, um, yeah, it was thinking that we could talk about the fact that I did send a client over to get a second opinion from you. Um, her doctor, she switched into my care late. Um, and has How actually, many weeks was she coming She's late? like 28, oh, okay. 29. Not real late, but late. No, no. Um, and uh, her doctor had told her that they thought that she had poly. And I said, you know, I really respect Dr. Fishbein. I would really love it if you would just go and get a second opinion from him. Because if he says so, then I know that that's true. And he's just not over-exaggerating. So you saw her last week and agreed. Yeah, although I'd seen her, I think it'd been two or three weeks since she'd seen the the MFM. And the fluid level was the same. It hadn't gotten more. Although that's... It's It's very subjective. subjective. but, But yeah, but in three weeks, if it was really getting malignantly bad mm-hmm. uh we would know that her level was what 25 26 i think i thought four but maybe oh mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that so it wasn't 30 35 50 mm-hmm. where you're getting worried about it but she had mentioned the fact that if the 
fluid was still increasing, that the doctor was going to want to tap her and drain and drain the fluid. You remember that? Yes, I don't love that. No, you and I talked about that in birth for another mom, but not in prenatal. Yeah, I don't. I don't see the reason in this particular case to do that because I don't see. Uh, the mother's not in, in any any sort of discomfort with her breathing or her uterus isn't taut or tight and the baby um, isn't in any sort of any sort of uh, distress of any kind. So it's a sort of an invasive procedure. But again, he may have just been suggesting it. And often what comes out of the mouth of physicians is not what goes into the ears of the people they're talking to. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that that was exactly true. I do believe that the woman in England was told that she has to have a C-section at 36 weeks. I do believe that. Mm -hmm. So you had recommended that I um, have her do some random glucose tests at home um, with a glucometer to just make sure. Yes. And so because the most common cause, because her baby was also large too, it was in there like the 80th percentile mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, and so. And she had passed her diabetes screening, mm -hmm. but she said, she told me that she hadn't really eaten that well that day or something yeah. like that. So I asked her if she could ask her doctor for a prescription. If not, I had one here. And um, so she was told by the doctor that she needed to repeat her glucola before they would do that. So I think that's what she did yesterday. I'm going to see her today. Oh, okay. Um, so whatever, you know, if your recommendation was that she continue to see this doctor just in case she's not able to do a home birth. Um, and so I think that's going to be difficult for her to be straddling these two worlds but i understand why you made that recommendation yeah i thought it would be good for her to um to keep a foot in that door yeah right so anyways it was interesting okay mm -hmm. so a couple of things i'd like to get to today i hope we can get to all of them but one of them is going to be talking a little bit about epidurals because there was a new study that came out that I want to go over, mm -hmm. but also because I've had my theory of epidurals and I'm going to review my theory for people that haven't heard it before. Um, then I want to talk a lot like my, my, my dear friend, Nathan Riley and his lovely podcast. He's called it's OBGYN Wino, OBGYNO Wino, mm -hmm. Wino Gyno, OBGYN, OBGYNO Wino podcast. <laughs> I love Nathan. And he, what he does a lot of times is he looks at some of the ACOG stuff. He's much, he's more medical than me. And he looks at the ACOG stuff and then breaks it down. And, and so he does a good job. And his podcast is, is not only for, for clients, but it's also for other medical personnel. He's not practicing anymore though, right? Yeah. He keeps talking about my practice and I don't think that he's actually practicing. So. <laughs> I don't know, but we're going to get to that because he, he used a term that I'm, that I want to, I want to correct for the ether. Okay. Um, and then we'll see where we get to after that. Oh, I have a couple letters too, but I, I want to start with epidural first because many of you have heard me talk about this before, that a lot of physicians um, consider epidurals to be completely benign. And, and why would you ever have labor without an epidural? Uh, why would you ever have a tooth pulled without anesthesia? And you know that I've, many of you listened, know I, I, on my blog page, back a couple of years, I wrote a blog called Labor is Not a Toothache. And you can get some of the what I'm saying now from that blog, but um, I don't believe that epidurals are benign. I don't believe they are candy. Uh, you know, some I remember this famous quote from a patient told me that doctor said to them, "Well, why would you not want your candy?" Mm -hmm. Calling the epidural candy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And here's does it sound good? Yeah. And here's my theory, my brief, uh, my my uh, crypt notes version of my theory about why epidurals aren't necessarily benign. And that's because 
I look at labor in the whole. I look at labor uh, in, uh, as why would nature design a system like that? And so you have to ask yourself, why is labor painful? Right. Because painful labor usually makes a mammal cry out right, in discomfort. And a mammal that's crying out in discomfort in the wild is, is going to be more vulnerable to being attacked by a predator. So you'd think that if, if labor, the there was no benefit to labor, that the pain of labor or the that sort of thing would evolve away. But it hasn't. It persists. So if you deeply think into that, you have to ask yourself, well, why is that? And so here's my theory, is that when a woman has a surge, um, she, it's uncomfortable for her. And when you have discomfort, you put out certain neurotransmitters to help you deal with that. And you do certain actions like moving or, or rolling or getting in water or doing something that helps you cope with that discomfort. But the neurotransmitters you put out are things like adrenaline, right? When you have pain, you put out adrenaline. What does adrenaline do to contractions? It spaces them out a little bit, gives the mother a little more time to recover. You put out cortisol. What does cortisol do? It helps you deal with stress. You're putting out oxytocin, of course, because that's the thing that's making you contract. And you're also putting out uh, endorphins or enkephalins, which are your body's own opiates. And that helps you deal with the discomfort in, in, the, in a biological way. And so every three minutes or so, you're having one of these contractions. You put out these neurotransmitters. They help you deal with the contraction. Your labor spaces out just enough to give you a little bit of relief, a time for the neurotransmitters and the and the receptors to regenerate, and then the whole thing starts over again. So every time you're having a contraction, it's hurting, all right? So why would you want to have that continue if you could take, have it be if you could be numb and not have that but still contract? Wouldn't that be great? But then people who say that aren't thinking that you know what. The mother is not alone in the process. The baby is also, every time a mother contracts, experiencing something that's new to the baby that it's never had before in its entire existence of nine months, other than a few Braxton Hicks. It's never had repetitive contractions, which are now squeezing the baby, or maybe the water breaks, and now the baby's actually getting funneled down a tunnel, and it can't, can't be that uncomfortable for a baby's head to be squished, or a baby's butt or balls to be squished, depending on if it's breech or not. So it's uncomfortable. So when a mother puts out these four major neurotransmitters, among other things, to help her with the labor, those neurotransmitters cross the placenta. And the baby gets a waft of adrenaline, a waft of mother's cortisol, a waft of mother's oxytocin, which says mom is still there and she loves me. And you get also a, a bit of mom's endorphins, which helps the baby cope with an experience that the baby has no way of understanding what's going on. And so the midwifery model, of course, thinks of mother-baby as a unit. The medical model doesn't think of them as a unit. They're two different people and the baby goes in the bassinet and it belongs to the pediatric department and that's the end of it. But midwifery is wiser than that. And if we look at the system, so when you give a woman and you make her numb, she's fine, okay? But now the baby's still going through contractions every three to four minutes and in my you know, weird sense, I, it, it, you could hear the baby saying, where's mom? What happened to mom? Mm -hmm. Where'd mom go? And the baby's suddenly, you know, alone. And the contractions have now spaced out a little bit because of the epidural. So what do we do? Get Pitocin. We have oxytocin or we add Pitocin. Which is synthetic. Which is different. It doesn't mm -hmm. have the same bonding sort of thing. So, um, but it makes the contractions. And then we say, well, the mother's comfortable. So let's get the contractions every two to three minutes because we'll have to get that baby out. So meanwhile, the baby's getting squeezed. It has no connection to its mother anymore. It 
eventually gets into some stress. It doesn't tolerate labor well and eventually fetal distress. And they do an emergency, you know, then they rush you down the hall and do an emergency C-section and they saved your baby. But actually the whole process caused the problem in the first place. Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes epidurals are amazing and um, everything progresses and you have a beautiful vaginal delivery and you have a lot of satisfaction. So it's not always, but it does increase the risk of things like that. It increases your temperature, which makes them think that possibly you have an infection. Um, then they recommend that you don't take your placenta. Um, sometimes your blood pressure is affected. Sometimes the baby's heart rate is affected. You can't move properly anymore. Um, you can't uh, necessarily feel the sensations, which can cause maybe potentially more tearing. Um, there's just a lot of things that start to happen in that cascade. So what I tell people is you can avoid it, great. And if you have to get it, wait until you're at least six centimeters. But I like your I like your theory. Yeah, and and again, I'm not saying that epidural should are wrong for everybody. Of course yeah, not, right? Yeah. Of course not. Yeah. But the the injudicious use of it, where where 80 to 90 percent of women who go to a hospital are getting an epidural. Yeah. I think the national average was 67 percent, but I know that the hospitals around here, it's a lot, it's a lot higher. higher. Yeah, okay. and it's not candy. You're right. It's something to be to be taken seriously. Okay, so I got this feed this article. Um, I. I I get the um, uh, certain journals and I go through them and this article jumped out at me and this is, I'll just hold it up to the screen here. You can just see it real briefly. It's from the Journal of the American uh, Medical Association Pediatrics, I think. You can sort of see that. I got my notes on there. And the title of the epidural is Association Between, or the title of the article, mm -hmm. Association Between Epidural Anesthesia During Labor and the Risk of Autism Spectral Disorder in Offspring. This is something that has never, I've never really heard a relationship before. Mm -hmm. I've always surmised it. Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. So this is a, this is a fairly interesting study. And all I have is I don't have the whole study. I only have, I'm not, I don't have access to it, but I did get the full abstract. So I kind of analyzed it very carefully. And the objective was to assess the association between maternal labor, epidural anesthesia exposure and the risk of autism spectral disorder or ASD in offspring. All right. And the results were interesting, all right? They they looked at 147,895 single children. So singletons, they excluded twins and other things like that. But but um and 50.3% were boys, 49.7% were girls. Um but that's a very large number. So from that you can abstract that there's probably some statistical significance to this study, all right? Uh, of the 147,895 children, 109,719, or 74.2%, were exposed to labor epidurals. So they had an epidural rate of 74% in this mm -hmm. study, which seems to be about, about right. And most of these are going to be primips, probably. Okay. Uh, fever during labor was observed in, I won't go through the numbers, but 11.9% of the laboring epidural anesthesia group, um, but only 1.3% in the non-epidural group. Mm -hmm. So there was a tenfold increase in fever um, associated with this. Now, is fever associated with, uh, what's it called, uh, autism spectral, uh, or just, I'll just say autism, mm -hmm. <laughs> or ASD. Um, they found that the fever was not associated with it, that the fever did not have anything to do with 
an, uh, uh, any sort of higher risk. But they did find this, um, that ASD or autism spect spectrum disorder was diagnosed in 2039 children or 1.9% in the labor uh, epidural group and only 1.3% in the non-labor group. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, all right? But it did reach statistical significance, okay? I mean, that is a 0.6% increase which is literally a almost, it's a, like a 45% higher rate if you look at relative rate rather than actual rate. So it's 45% higher in women who get an epidural, even though it's still a low number. Yeah. But still even one, even one or two, one to 2% 2 of all babies are born with autism. Autism? It's increased greatly. Yeah. That's, last, that's, I don't know. Yeah, I've heard, it's, I've heard it's like one in 30 or one in 40, but mm -hmm. you know, it used to be much, much smaller numbers. All right. That's an incredibly, that's an incredibly uh, high amount of babies born that way. I'm glad that we're looking into it deeper, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of theories about, about why that's happening. Yeah. Vaccinations. Fact, and pre-labor pre cesarean sections, vaccinations, um, you know, the, the babies that aren't exposed to mom's oxytocin, which of course is your bonding hormone and your, your love hormone. And if you're never exposed to mother's oxytocin, do you not develop oxytocin receptors, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. That's, that's uh, Michelle O'Donnell and his theories, but okay. So the, the, um, the risk associated with, um, so the overall, the risk associated with, um, labor epidural versus non-labor epidural was a 1.37 relative risk. Okay. So it's, that's significant. All right. What they did find, however, that the length of, it, it wasn't the, the fever that was the issue. It was the length of time that you had the epidural. That makes sense too. So the longer you have an epidural in, the more likely you are to develop this problem. And again, this problem isn't something that's common, but it's just another thing to put in the mix when you're thinking and as far as informed consent goes regarding epidurals. Right. So if, if as Bliss said earlier, if you can hold off getting an epidural, you know, don't get it because you're getting induced. Don't get it before you start the Pitocin. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> Some people do. Yeah, but it's it is difficult, right? It is difficult. They don't want to feel Pitocin. they don't want to feel anything. Yeah. Well, Pitocin is synthetic and it is very different than a normal contraction. So just something to think about. The relative yeah. risk is about one point four. Interesting. Um, very interesting. With just and that and it was controlled for other all the other variables were relatively controlled for. It was a relatively large group of women. So you can't say that then there were small numbers. It wasn't like they did twelve women or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean there were there were 109,719 women who got epidurals, right, right. So Jackie Dula says vaccinations are more ruled out not to be a factor for autism studies shown. I'd love you to send me those studies because I've actually seen things that um, contradict that. So send me your yeah, studies. Enough, I'd love to review and it. And there's enough anecdotal stories from parents who say that their kid was normal and then right. spiked a fever after got a vaccine and then sort of never made eye contact again. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. it's hard to figure. Thank you. Know, you. I mean, sent me. I oh, from the CDC. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> but I'll, I'll look it over. <laughs> Do you want to tell her what, why? No, I mean, look, at, I'm going <laughs> to, if we have time today, I'm going to get into a little bit of, of what's happening in Los Angeles and other places around the country regarding 
the CDC recommendations and the mayor and the governor's recommendations to shut down everything again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we can't just cherry pick the CDC recommendations we like and ignore the ones we don't like. Some of my midwife friends do that. They, they quote the CDC on certain things, but they, but they defy the CDC on other things. So I think, I think that, that just quoting the CDC, because the CDC has been wrong on a lot of things like masks. They were anti-mask and then they were pro-mask and there's been evidence that now they say that masks probably don't work as well as we think they do but they still recommend that everyone wear one and it's like so i by the way it's hard to trust anything that you read in the in the in the um, in the news right now it's really hard to trust it there's there's no reason to believe anything that's read because so much of it has been fake and false and and used to, to manipulate us and hysterical because it's good for the media or they have an ideological viewpoint. All right. Changing topic. All right. <laughs> okay. So, um, hello. I have been enjoying. This is a letter from Astrid in Steamboat Springs. I love Steamboat Springs. It's probably beautiful there right now. Uh, Astrid says, hello. I have been enjoying your podcast weekly on my drives to clients. Thank you both. I wonder what your general recommendation slash protocol is for post-state testing. Okay. Thank you in advance, Astrid. So, why don't you start? Astrid. Why don't you start? Um, why don't I start? Okay, so my recommendation is to have a conversation with clients um, as they get between 41 and 42 weeks because that's when the statistics increase considerably between 41 and 42 weeks. Um, and then usually Dr. Stu and I are on the same page about this as somewhere between 41 and 42, unless there's an other, an additional reason to be concerned growth, or you've heard something, baby's not moving as much, something like that, that you know that you should check in deeper. Yeah. For the sake of this conversation, let's just assume that, that Denzies are normal, that yeah. they don't, there aren't people with preeclampsia or diabetes or yeah, yeah, yeah. twins or anything else. Well, yeah, because I don't deal with those clients. Right. So, um, and then we usually recommend doing a biophysical profile um, between 41 and 42 weeks. Yes. And right. then I, you know, I have the loss. So they, and then they have to deliver. You have a little bit longer. So you might have them coming, uh, you know, every few days after that, depending on what you see. Right. Right. That's and that's it? I think so. Okay. Am I missing something? Well, um, no, you're not missing anything other than the fact that because of the law we have in California, mm -hmm. you also at some point are going to have them make a connection with, a, you know, potentially with a physician. Mm, it's it's not always because so, there's not that many people we can make a connection with. Okay. There's not a lot of people who support it. So I have two connections um, and that's usually something we decide earlier than that. And what's your protocol about vaginal exams? I don't do vaginal exams in, in pregnancy. Unless they're getting to like 41 and 5 and they want to be swept? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have um, on, on my website for, it's, it, it's in the protected section for clients, my post-AIDS pregnancy protocol. And I haven't really changed this in about 10 years, but it seems to be relatively consistent with what you just said. So what I do at 41 weeks gestation is I give them this form and I, I recommend biophysical profile testing, which includes a non-stress test. Mm -hmm. And I recommend it twice weekly at that point. Okay. Because the data on biophysical profile says that if it's normal or you get a score of 10 out of 10, 
that the likelihood of an adverse event, meaning a stillbirth happening in the next three to four days is far less than 1%. Right. And for me, I have, they have to be in labor by the end of that weekend. So days. twice a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wrote down that there's a, the option of doing a Bishop score, right? Mm-hmm. Which I'm going to, which I, by the way, I have a, I have a handout on it because I don't know that we've ever, did we ever really go through a Bishop score? What does it mean? I don't think so. So I think we'll talk a little bit about that Not too. Not while I've been your co-host. Okay. At, at 41 and a half weeks, I offer the option, option of a consult. Well, this is, this is a midwife protocol that they don't have to leave me, but I always offer the option of going in for an induction. Mm-hmm. All right. So that I've, I've covered that base with them. Good I tell them the pros and cons of going in for an induction, uh, the types of inductions that, that are available to them in the hospital, whether it be, you know, a uh, cook catheter, uh, cervical ripening, uh, AROM, uh, just Pitocin, all the different things that they can do in the hospital. Well, you can do a cook catheter. Well, right, mm-hmm. versus what I can do in the, in the home setting. Mm-hmm. And we can, do, we can do a sweep, we can do a cervical uh, a cook catheter. Um, you know, I found that castor oil doesn't work unless the, unless you have a real favorable cervix. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so I'm sort of reluctant uh, to give castor oil just to women whose cervixes are unfavorable. Okay. How about you? I don't check their cervix. Well, what, what, if they're, what, if they're, what, what if they're 41 and 5? You would just give it to them or you would yeah. check their cervix first? No. I mean... That, that's the last chance we've got to have a vaginal delivery. So why not? You don't think a sweep, a sweep and releasing of their natural prostaglandins will help? Um, they've usually done that by now, but some of them opt not to. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then 42 weeks I evaluate because I don't have the restriction. I evaluate on a case-by-case basis, which is sort of what we do with every client we take in anyway. So it's, mm-hmm. it's nothing special unique. And then um, I review the known risks uh, to prolong post-stage gestation. These are these include but are not limited to some of these following things. You're more likely to develop preeclampsia or pregnancy-induced hypertension. However, if you haven't had it by 42 weeks, you're probably not going to get it by 42 weeks in one day or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, decreasing amniotic fluid volume, which is what we're watching for. Yeah. All right. We don't necessarily induce people because they have lowish fluid. But it goes down over time in pregnancy. It's natural naturally. to go down over yeah. time. Yep. Yeah. All right. But the, whether they have a two centimeter pocket or somebody says five centimeters of all four quadrants, either one of those really satisfies the requirement of, of what's called a uh, normal amniotic fluid volume. It may not be comfortable for the physician that's doing it, but that doesn't make a reason to induce. Mm-hmm. You really have to give that information. And of course, how the information is given will dictate really how the client will respond because how you skew your counseling always gets people to respond that way. Right. Uh, larger fetus, shoulder dystocia, slightly goes up, uh, placental insufficiency, cord accident, fetal demise are all things that can go on. But if you're having normal testing at 42 weeks or 42 and a half weeks, the likelihood of fetal demise should be the same as it is if you're doing the testing at 40 weeks, mm-hmm. shouldn't it? If you, if you believe in the biophysical profile, it's having a high accuracy rate. Yes. Okay. So that's that. So quickly, really, real quickly on Bishop's scores, um, there are five categories in a Bishop score. I'm just going to gloss over them real, real quickly. Um, we have the dilation of the cervix, the position of the cervix, whether it's really far posterior, mid position or anterior, effacement of the cervix. Um, and there's different numbers of it. I'm going to hold this up to the screen in a second. Station and cervical consistency. And you can have a score anywhere from zero to 13. Mm-hmm. 
Induction seems to work really well when you have a score of eight or more. So people can choose to do that or not do that. I'm not going to dwell on that for a really long time, but you can take a screenshot of that and you guys can take a screenshot of that. Okay. And maybe I'll post that somewhere on my, on my website or something like that. So if you are deciding whether or not to induce someone in the hospital, that makes sense. But why, why do you use that? I mean, because they're alternative. Oh, I don't. I don't. This is oh, okay. this is this is this Just is for informative. This is informative. The Bishop score thing is informative. Mm -hmm. It's 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 how I counsel patients. Well, I told you I make this thing. I made that thing about ten years ago when I first started doing home birthing. Mm -hmm. So I was still thinking very medically speaking. But but I'm Astrid wanted to know, so I'm giving her the okay, the it. whole nine yeah. yards of all the things, and then Astrid can pick and choose how she wants to individualize her care. Yes. Right. Created in 1964 by Edward Bishop, by the way. Yeah. All these things were He's created by probably a by colleague men. of, of uh, Friedman <laughs> and... Uh, Quantifying... The, the forcep guys, yeah. The unquantifiable. Yeah. But, um, someone asked a question that we can answer super quick. Uh, home, during home birth, how often do you listen to heart tones during labor? So in active labor, we listen every 30 minutes. Give or take. Yep, and then um, we're, we're not setting an alarm to go check, right? Sometimes yeah. I do. do depends you really? on yeah, oh, okay. depends on how I'm feeling about it. Um, and then as uh, we get closer to pushing or during the pushing phase, um, we're listening more frequently, and that really did you know that's kind of a I think the standard of care amongst midwives is um, after every other push, unless you're hearing something. Um, but you know, you, you kind of start to get into the feeling about how this baby has been doing over labor and how they are doing during the pushing phase. And sometimes you don't need to listen after every other push. Yeah. And actually, and sometimes um, you need to listen every push. So what the, the 30 minute thing and all that stuff, that also is rather arbitrary. Totally. Okay. It's <laughs> kind of like the, the, the way doctors come up with these arbitrary totally. numbers, like, you know, 24 hours of ruptured membranes and stuff. They come up with these numbers and they always, they always happen to be perfectly even, you know, it's not, we're going to listen to the baby every 23 minutes right. and 12 seconds. They don't say that. <laughs> so, you know, so the, but because by the way, if this woman was laboring at home with nobody there, no one would be listening ever. Right. And nobody was listening before we got there. Right. So, so yeah, it's why are we doing it? We're doing it because some, bureaucrat someplace or some administrative person someplace decided this would be the best way to legally protect you or something of that nature. And bingo. You, was, that, was that a bingo? That was a bingo. Because okay. if you don't and something happens right. and you weren't listening, yeah, you can help be held liable. Okay. All right. So another letter. All right. On your next podcast. I love your letters. Yeah. I love them. Keep them coming. Oh, this one doesn't have a name on it though. Oh, hmm. bummer. Okay. I don't know where I got it. I, 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 you know, I cut and paste them so mm -hmm. I can print them out so mm -hmm. I can read them in big print because otherwise they're like really little print. I can't read. On your next podcast slash chat, can you go over any new restrictions for birthing people? That's right. I know the West Coast is locking down again. You know, we're going to talk about that in a second. And here in Washington State, they have already banned doulas from UW Hospital and partners can no longer attend appointments. Heartbreaking. Thanks for all you do. So I'm uh, happy I'm planning a home birth with this baby. So are Yay. we. Yeah, so are we. I don't, I don't, I'm sorry I don't know your name. I, I probably didn't cut and paste the whole message, so mm -hmm. my fault. Mm -hmm. All right. 
So what's happening as far I as you know? I don't feel like anything has really changed. I feel like um, it was very much locked down in the beginning and partners weren't able and doulas weren't able. And now partners are able and doulas, depending on the hospital, are. Um, a lot of times people can't go to appointments with their partners. That's been Yeah, that's consistent. still going on. That's yeah. still going on. That to me is... That hasn't changed. Yeah, I still think it's an outrage. Yeah, it's not how we do it. Your partners can come. As can your children. Right. It should be part of it. Yep. Yep. Because we look at birth as a, an event and we don't look as father, at fathers as non-essential personnel. That's right. I love that term. <laughs> I mean, fathers are already struggling. They're already struggling with uh, struggling. how how can they support their, their partner? How, you know, it's a, it's a lot of guys are, it's very, they're sort of, you know, all thumbs for this sort of, this sort of thing. And then when they're told that they can't see their baby, then that's even worse. And the idea that, you know, especially in a doctor's office, that they can't bring them in the side door into the ultrasound room, but they, but the tech, you know, can wear clothes from home, go out to lunch, hang with their buds, see 16 people during the day. That's safe, but the woman's husband who she sleeps with and lives with is not safe. Maybe it's more exposing the people at the office to more people. Not not necessarily the, the woman herself, obviously. Her partner has been with her. But yeah. I think that's, I think, yeah. It's silly. I don't know there's any, I can tell you there's no science behind that either. Yeah. That's what we're going to, we're going to get to that now because I, I have to get to this talk from one of my favorite authors. So um, we'll talk a little bit about what's going what's going on in here. But um, I've mentioned Heather McDonald on the show a few times before. She's one of my favorite uh, journalists and she's the one who came up with, you know, walking on a hiking trail with a mask is a walking billboard for institutionalized fear. And I've, I've said that before on the podcast. And she wrote an article that came out yesterday in American Spectator, I think it was. And it just comes up on my feed. Um, again, I have too much time on my hands right now. Right? Because <laughs> there's nothing to do. When, I'm, when I, I finish work, if I work, or I finish a home visit, I come home, I get everything done. I go for a four-mile hike. I go to the see the horses. I stop at the grocery store. And it's... Noon. <laughs> and it's noon because I'm up, you know, I'm up at 630. My cats wake me up because they have to be fed. So um, Homer just sits there and stares at me. It's, it's, it's very, it's, it's very, uh, it's very um, haunting. Sometimes you wake up and there's, this, he's just in that typical cat pose, like the Egyptian cat pose, just sitting on the side, sitting right on the bed, staring at me. <laughs> He doesn't really wake me up. He doesn't like meow or wake me up. But he just but I know that he's there staring at me. And it's every morning it's the same thing. Right. Right. But he has been using the litter box lately. Nice. Good he, job, he's, Homer. He's, he still messes up once a week or so, but mm -hmm. but better. Okay. So I don't know wherever you all of you live, but but Los Angeles is one of these typical big cities things that I feel for the people here and I feel for the people in New York City, um, the kind of things that they're doing to destroy it. I know that I, this, this really personally hurts me because 
I have gone to my sister's house or my mother's house when she was still alive for Thanksgiving for 37 of the 38 years that I've lived in Southern California. Mm -hmm. I missed one year where I had to take call for a group because it was my turn. It was my turn. Yeah. But other than that, this will be the first year that my family is not gathering for Thanksgiving in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And it's upsetting to me. And I talked to my sister about it and she says, you know, she said, they're not fearful, but they're being respectful of other people's fears. So it's like, you know, respectful of, of, of the healthcare workers and, you know, they don't want to over it. They don't want to get sick. And then, you know, my, my sister, that's why sister, that's Minnesota nice. So that's just the way she is. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, but I, I'm here in Los Angeles, sort of alone. I have my kids here, but none of them want to get gather. All right. So they're either doing something with themselves or with their girl, or with their, their, their significant others, family or something like that. And I, and, and they don't want other people around there. So I am sort of in a situation where I've been invited. Thank you to many places for Thanksgiving, but it's not the same. And, yeah. and Thanksgiving is a holiday. That's the big holiday for my family. And it's being ruined as was Easter, as will Christmas, you know, as with all these traditional holidays that seem to matter, you know, other than, other than, you know, being outside for a protest, there's really no reason to ever gather. You can't, you know, church services are limited. Synagogue, of course, the same thing. Um, and then is there, so the question is, what are we doing? What are we doing to our, our society? So she wrote an article that about what's going on right now is more like Salem than Thanksgiving. Does everybody know what Salem is? Salem Witch Trail? Correct. Mm-hmm. There you go. Thank you. Where lots of midwives were persecuted. Okay, so she's, she starts out this way. Um, had King James's Privy Council contained a proto-Anthony Fauci in 1620, there might not have been a Thanksgiving holiday for the current day Fauci and his peers to cancel four centuries later. The transatlantic voyage had, that brought the pilgrims to Plymouth Rock, by the way, it is 400 years. Yeah, I know. That's weird. Um, would have been unthinkable under the stay-safe philosophy that now governs American life. Nearly half of the 102 occupants on the Mayflower died in the first year of settlement at Plymouth, sometimes at a rate of three per day. Such a mortality rate was predictable. The earliest outpost at Jamestown, founded in 1607, lost 66 of its original 104 settlers in the first nine months. Other early settlement casualties included the outpost of Roanoke, which simply disappeared. Overall, for every six would-be colonists who ventured across the Atlantic, only one survived according to one estimate. Trying to establish a new life in the new new world was most definitely not safe. (laughs) And yet the voyagers kept coming, driven by something beyond safetyism. Religious zeal, ambition, passion for discovery, the desire for greater freedom. These Americans who later spread across the continent, whether as solo explorers or in wagon trains, likewise eschewed a stay safe philosophy. Okay. Today, we are strangling American society in order to avoid a risk of death so infinitesimal, roughly 0.001% for the majority of Americans that it would not have registered in any possible cost-benefit analysis governing both notable American endeavors and quotidian activities over the last four centuries. I guess that's notable activities, quotidian, (laughs) ones that are worth quoting, Mm, yes? mm -hmm. It's an interesting word. Good word. Yeah. Our current Thanksgiving Day mantras, quote, stay within your pod, stay within your bubble, stay within your household, unquote, 
in the words of the University of California, San Francisco, don't travel, don't share food, don't touch your family members or friends, speak only in hushed tones, make a mockery of the spirit that creates a country that sustains human life. This present moment is less like the first Thanksgiving celebration and more like the Salem witch frenzy of 1692. To be sure, the coronavirus is real, witches were not. The virus has cost thousands of lives, witches did not. But the fear that has gripped much of the population over the last year, whipped up by sundry experts and authorities, is as disconnected from reason as that emblematic burst of hysteria in colonial Massachusetts in 1692 and other such panics throughout medieval and early modern Europe. The shared features of all such contagious fear events include the following. All right. One is the belief in a ubiquitous threat. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti has advised Los Angelinos to, quote, assume that everyone you encounter is infected, unquote. Under, <laughs> under even the most liberal assumptions of undetected community spread, however, only a small fraction of Los Angeles population would be infected and currently contagious. As for the threat of death, most of the population faces none from the virus. The average age of coronavirus decedents is 80, which is four years higher than the average life expectancy for the U.S. male, and just a year under the average life expectancy for the U.S. female. Most decedents have underlying comorbidities. Up to two-thirds of coronavirus casualties may have died of other causes by the end of 2020. Forty percent of U.S. coronavirus deaths have occurred in nursing homes. Sadly, death is already a fate of virtually all residents of such facilities, however much we may understandably try to defer it. I mean, people who live in nursing homes, their ultimate fate is they die. That's why they're in nursing homes. Yeah, I think, I think most people are talking about the ones that are not, don't have the comorbidities. Oops, sorry about that. I should be gone. Um, you know, a right. lot of people know someone who has gotten very ill or died that didn't have that. That's the part I, th I think that was a text from Mayor Garcetti. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me they're going to come and break down the doors here. Okay. Um, scapegoats and stigma. This is brief. Public officials have piled onto those intransigents who do not wear masks in the great outdoors, blaming them for the spread. How can I spread something I don't have? Or if you're not near anybody. Well, outdoor mask refusenicks have been screamed at and shamed by... Citizen enforcers of the outdoor mask dogma. The media imply false causal connections. Wisconsin health officials reported that more jaw-dropping COVID-19 infection numbers Thursday, reported the Chicago Tribune, as people continued to flaunt recommendations to wear masks, emphasis added. But there is no evidence for open-air transmission, absent highly unusual packed settings and prolonged contact. Transmission per the CDC's own... CDC? CDC. Trust the CDC. Own contact tracing guidelines requires a cumulative 15 minutes of close contact with an infected person overwhelmingly in poorly ventilated, cramped indoor settings. In the outdoors, circulating air disperses any possible viral dose to the point of non-existence, even if most outdoor encounters were not too fleeting to be of concern. Well, and also, what about the six six feet apart thing? Well, there's no, there's no science in that either, but... No, but if that's, I mean, that's what we've been told, right? So if you're not, if you're not... Well, you have to, to wear a mask lighting. and be six feet apart. <laughs> okay. But you also have to wear a mask and be 60 feet apart. By the way, I... You have to wear a mask and be 150 yards apart. You have to be a mask and be the only person on a trail two miles from anyone else, and you have to wear your mask. Because mm -hmm. those particles could just, could just float right into your nose and cause you to develop coronavirus. All right. Mm -hmm. I mean, and worse, and see what what when happens. When is it going to stop? What happens right, when 
people in authority make these sorts of recommendations that are just idiotic, it, it, it creates distrust in anything that they say in the future. Any, any guidelines, any things that our leaders are going to say, we're always going to be skeptical of them because they've made fools of themselves by the idea that you can have two people in a boat and not three people in a boat. and You can go to this market, but you can't go to this market and you can do this and you can't do that. And then, of course, they're all I'm not even talking about get them get all getting busted, flouting the rules that they have made. You know, we everybody knows about those, so I'm not going to get into that. Okay, another thing that goes along with the Salem witch trials is am, having amulets and, rit and ritualistic gestures. The mask is believed to possess totemic power, even though there is little evidence that its use correlates inversely with community spread or that it protects wearers from infection. A new gesture is being added to the ritual of ostentatious plain air mask wearing, the supplemental hand and hand defense. Okay. In the, in the faculty housing area of the University of California, Irvine, masked walkers now regularly cover their mask with their hands if they see an unmasked passerby approach, no matter the large birth each will give each other and their short lived prospects. So they'll be wearing a mask and they'll cover their face with their hand as well. Science. Magical formulas. All right. Once hysteria takes over, any expectation that public officials will act according to reason is discarded. New York's mayor, Bill de, Lazio, Bill, uh, Bill de Blasio, has long set a metric for reclosing the city's schools, a 3% infection rate among the tested population. He arrived at the number in conjunction with the teachers' union. How did the mayor and union come up with it? We don't know. Is it related to anything real? By definition, no. The evidence is now overwhelming that children have virtually no risk of dying from the virus, nor do they spread it to adults. You know, maybe in March of last year, when people didn't know anything, but now we know stuff, and they're, do and they're doing it all over again. A random sampling of 16,000 students and staff in New York City schools yielded only 28 positive tests. None of these cases resulted in serious illness or death. The New York City school system, where, where a freestanding community, would be among the nation's safest places to reside. <laughs> okay, 28 tests positive in 16,000 people. Nevertheless, the mayor, along with other mayors across the country, have now reshut the public schools, guaranteeing that the academic skills of black and Hispanic children will fall further behind those of whites and Asians, or well-to-do whites and Asians, we should say. More racial strife and phony charges of systemic racism will follow. Virginia requires that children from age two onwards wear masks. Mm -hmm. Such a practice lacking any grounding in actual science will likely have crippling psychological consequences. What are those? Simply, you know, they won't recognize faces. They won't be able to socialize. You know, the, the cues that, that babies and infants and young toddlers are picking up by seeing other people act and face and talk and, and, and seeing people's lips move and being able to speak and all these things. Oh, and only knowing their, their parents or their immediate family. Yeah. It's, you know? Yeah. But, and again, there's no data to support two-year-olds wearing masks or to anything above two-year-old wearing masks. Mm -hmm. The rising caseload and the oncoming Thanksgiving holiday have triggered a new explosion of arbitrary government dictates. Oregon's governor is limiting social gatherings to no more than six people. How did she arrive at that number? By no known body of evidence. If it existed, presumably the six-person ceiling would be universal. But Yolo County, California, where Sacramento is located, has a 16-person cap on it. Thanksgiving and other gatherings while 
Oh, while Kentucky is limiting Thanksgiving to eight people from two different households. The state of California magnanimously allows a grand total of three households. Before celebrating such relative liberality, note that California requires that the lucky three social units, whose members must have called, of course, all be masked, disperse after two hours. <laughs> that three household, two hour ceiling applies even if the gathering occurs in a public park. All right. Without any advance warning, Los Angeles County shut down all outdoor dining on November 23rd, two days ago, signing the death warrant for thousands of restaurants and casting thousands of workers back into unemployment. Yep. Restaurant owners had invested thousands of dollars into outdoor heat lamps and other outdoor dining equipment, and they will have to throw out thousands of dollars of food. Mm, yeah. Yep. Los Angeles County has no evidence of any transmission among outdoor diners. Okay. None. The experts fear no rebellion over rules that destroy the very thing that they purport to regulate. Bringing your own meal to Thanksgiving and not even sharing it cancels the spirit of the holiday. Thanksgiving becomes indistinguishable from those cheerless family dinners where every teenager microwaves his own chosen frozen food and then slinks back to, with it to the privacy of his bedroom and his smartphone. Okay. Mm -hmm. Fetishes. We're getting through this. Case counts have been the object of veneration for months. Despite their near meaningless, uh, their near meaninglessness, that's a tough word. So it doesn't matter what cases are. Cases means nothing. Cases is actually a good thing because cases gets us closer and closer to herd immunity. Correct. Okay. So why are they emphasizing cases now rather than deaths? The obsession with case count is an implicit admission that the death rates have been a disappointment for they are falling rather than increasing. Okay. Currently infections among the young make up the lion's share of new cases. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, for example, 61% of confirmed and probable cases are connected to the university there. Most of these cases among the young are asymptomatic. The infection is so mild that the infected person is unaware he even has it. These infections are being picked up thanks to mandatory testing in college and school settings. It is not just the young, however, that are frequently asymptomatic. Across the entire population, a whopping 40 to 45% of cases initially known to their bearer initially unknown to their bearer before the test becomes positive. So about 45% of people who test positive didn't know they were tested. They got tested because their job made them get tested or because they, the university made them get tested. Somebody made them get tested or a relative said, before you can come over, go get tested. They had no symptoms whatsoever and they tested positive for coronavirus. A rising case count among the least at risk population is not something to be feared since it heralds the approach of herd immunity, as we just talked about. Males in the 20 to 29 age bracket without underlying conditions, get this one, okay, have a 99.9997 chance of surviving a coronavirus infection. While females in the same age bracket have a 99.9998 survival rate. You know what that is? I mean, I can't even calculate what that is. Is two per million? Two per 10 million? Uh, you're much I'd better have to figure at that than I would be. Okay. Yet since the start of the pandemic, the media and their bevy of public health sources have histrionically covered case counts, usually on an hourly basis, as if they signal imminent doom. And despite today's raging headlines, the current crisis is still largely anticipatory. Los Angeles County Director of Public Health, Barbara Fer Ferrer, she's a piece of work, has been leaning heavily on the promise of future disaster. Quote, this much of an increase in cases may very well result in tremendous suffering and tragic deaths down the road, she told the Los Angeles Times on November 12th. 
For now, however, the hospital, the number of hospitals that are severely burdened nationally is small. At least a quarter of all cases now being labeled as coronavirus hospitalizations in the daily media count were likely admitted for other problems and only retroactively classified as corona cases following a positive test. Governor, Governor California Governor Gavin Newsom has put 94% of the state's residents under another stay-at-home order, but only 6% of the state's hospital beds are occupied by COVID patients. Nationally, the case fatality rate has presumed and, and presumed infection fatality rate continued to drop. Human sacrifice. Almost all the businesses being sacrificed on the altar of coronavirus are as innocent as the Vestal's virgins of old. The public health authorities have no idea what is driving the current spread. They have no hard evidence that outdoor or indoor restaurant meals are responsible. They certainly have no evidence that shopping is responsible. And yet millions of livelihoods are being destroyed in the exercise of inebriating limitless power. We don't want you to go into restaurants and sitting and eating outside, and we don't want you to go into retail establishments either. Los Angeles ubiquitous Barbara Ferrer pronounced recently, Ferrer has no basis for stigmatizing retail establishments. Lastly, the shaming of heretics, all right, which would be like me. Neuroradiologist, Stanford scientist Scott Atlas, and the physician scientists who signed the Great Barrington Declaration, which we discussed on this podcast a while ago, have been denounced for challenging the efficacy of economic lockdowns, school shutdowns, and outdoor mask requirements. Their heresies have been borne out. Their heresies have been borne out by the evidence, like even shaming people with hydroxychloroquine and all that sort of thing. You know, the idea that you have alternative viewpoints not not okay shutting them down. A mature civilization understands that the risk is part of life and that there are higher purposes, even more sociability than avoiding death at all costs. No great venture can be accomplished if, if staying safe in life's only guideline, if staying safe is life's only guiding principle. Now, however, our elites mock courage and perseverance explicitly repudiating the virtues that built this country. The president upon leaving the hospital after coronavirus infection admonished the country to not be afraid of the virus in the Washington Post words and to not allow it to dominate our lives. That imminently reasonable exhortation once expected of a leader is still being denounced by public health experts and the media nearly two months later. If Americans do not repudiate this ethic of fear, future Thanksgivings will be even bleaker than this year's. Thank you, Heather McDonald. And you know what? I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Did you get, do we have, were there any comments or anything that people wanted to say? Nope. No, okay. I think everybody was just listening. Good. All right. Well, if you want to send comments, you can send it to the email because we only have like a minute left. So send it to askdrstew at gmail.com or send it to bliss at burlingbliss.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The only thing I wanted to say about that is, is the, you know, to me, when you start to talk about like the, the living, from avoiding risk and not really living, um, how synonymous it feels to our um, theories and feelings about birth. birth. Yeah. 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 And that, you know, because this is not the normal way of doing things, that it can be um, shamed and um, stated as being something that is not responsible. So I just kind of like to make that. Yeah. And, and, and I'm going to say goodbye to. My Instagram people, thanks for joining before us. You, before you click off. And I was going to say that, that again, we should leave it up to informed consent. People who are afraid and want to protect themselves should stay home. They can do that. Mm -hmm.
But to have these arbitrary restrictions, just like the arbitrary things that they come up with with the home birthing, the restrictions on you guys mm -hmm. and the things that you can do. Weeks no, we should be, we should, at some point, they're going to, are we ever going to push back? Is there ever going to be a point where they pushed too far? Is there going to be a last straw that breaks the camel's back? I don't know. But if this ain't it, it doesn't feel like it. Yeah. What's coming next? Mm -hmm. And they never stop, by the way. Totalitarian people never the stop. The vaccine for everyone is coming next, just so you know. Yeah, and I, the question I have for them is like, does Elliot Berlin need to get vaccinated? Why? Because he already had it. He told me at the birth the other night, he was at the birth, uh -huh. um, that his antibody level is raging. <laughs> okay. So why would he have to get vaccinated? But if he doesn't get vaccinated, then, then he won't be able to get on an airplane. Right. But he doesn't need to be vaccinated. He's already had it. Like, I've had measles. I don't need the measles vaccine. I'm immune. To be continued. Yes. We love you guys. Have right. a great week. We'll see you next week. All right. So week. thanks again for listening. We know you have all, all sorts of choices of where you can listen and what you can do with an hour. The fact that you join us for an hour um, every every week. We try to do every week. Uh, make, we're honored by that. And uh, until next time, this has been Dr. Stu's podcast number 160. And we'll see you then. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Gotta have the bye-bye. If we don't have the bye-bye, it's not, it's not Dr. Stu's. Bye. Yeah.